Well, let's turn to the uh, 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. We've come now to the final chapters of this book, and quite literally to the final chapter of the book of human history. This uh, long, sad, sorry history that began back in the Garden of Eden with the fall of man. But uh, running concurrently with that history, there is the history of redemption, which finds its consummation here uh, as described in chapters 21 and 22. What uh, these chapters describe is what theologians call the final state. We uh, just refer to it as heaven. This is the uh, end of all the longings and aspirations of our heart. It's striking to me that the Bible says so little about heaven. That's uh, contrary, I think, to the popular notion that the Bible is pie in the sky by and by. And uh, has a great deal to say about future things. Actually, it doesn't. The bulk of Revelation in the Bible is designed to teach us how to live right now, how to make our way through this uh, topsy-turvy, mixed-up world and not lose our balance or our sense of humor or our sanity. It has to do with wisdom and the capacity to cope with life right now, in the here and now. But uh, here and there through the Bible, you find what C.S. Lewis refers to as rumors of hope, intimations of glory, little flashes into the future, and uh, descriptions of what heaven will be like. Paul, for example, says that, I believe that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. In other words, what the world is doing to us today really is uh, quite insignificant compared to what God is going to do uh, within us. The great change in our character and our person that will come when we see Him. And then Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the fundamental revelation of heaven given to us in Scripture. We'll be with the Lord. That's what makes uh, heaven heavenly. What makes hell so hellish is that God is not there. And uh, all that God gives to life, all of the good things of life are absent. But heaven is heavenly because the Lord Jesus is there. And to be absent from this body is to be immediately present with the Lord. That's heaven. And then uh, in the verse that that uh, David read for us this morning in John 14, our Lord said to his disciples uh, as a result of their disappointment over his departure, don't uh, let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Keep on believing in me. In my Father's house are many places to dwell. The uh, King James, unfortunately, translates that phrase, in my Father's house are many mansions. And the impression is given that we'll all live in large uh, houses individually, but uh, really that's more a picture of hell, I think, than heaven because uh, the, the word actually means uh, a room in an inn. Unfortunately, the King James translators picked up the word that the uh, Latin Vulgate uses for that term and translated it mansions, but it's just a word for a room in a way station or an inn, and it evokes a, a beautiful picture of of uh, a long period of travel and you arrive at a comfortable inn and there's a place for you there and you can come out of your room and sit around a great table and spin yarns and, and uh, laugh and enjoy each other and eat together. That's what heaven will be like. 
Incidentally, that, that figure in John 14 um, is instructive because uh, much of the revelation about heaven in the Bible is just that sort of thing. It's symbolic. Apparently, there are no analogies in our experience to explain heaven. We don't have the terminology for it. And in some sense, uh, there's a real communication barrier. It's difficult. It would be impossible for us to, to understand what heaven is really like. And so throughout Scripture, you have pictures and symbols that are designed to evoke a feeling. And uh, sometimes it's almost like gilding the lily to try to explain what these symbols mean. The symbols themselves have such impact. And uh, that is actually what we have in the book of Revelation in these final chapters. It's a symbol of heaven, which uh, we can explain in some, in some measure, but not, not adequately. Let's read the first uh, four verses of chapter 21. John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his peoples, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, there are three things suggested in these four verses. The suggestion is given that the physical world will be changed, our physical circumstances will be altered, our emotional circumstances and makeup will be altered, and there will be spiritual changes as well. What he sees initially is a, is a new heaven and a new earth. The uh, phrase suggests uh, a totally new creation. Everything will be made, know, uh, made new, as he says in verse 5. I am making all things new. This is uh, the fulfillment of the promise given by Isaiah some uh, eight or 900 uh, years before the book of Revelation was written, that God was going to create a new world, a new universe, a new heavens and earth. And uh, it's necessary because the old world is inadequate. It's uh, fading. Uh, Paul describes the old world in Romans 8 in these terms. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, we are, according to Scripture, sons of God because we've been adopted into God's family. But we don't look like sons of God. However, Paul says, the time is coming when what we are will be revealed. There will be a great unveiling. And all of creation, he says, is eagerly wait awaiting this event, literally craning its neck because creation itself, the world of inanimate things, won't be changed until we are. For, he says, the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, that's something we all know. We know that uh, this creation uh, simply does not satisfy us. There's something desperately wrong with creation as we know it. 
It's fallen under a curse. The Lord told Adam after the fall that his creation would produce thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of his brow he would earn his, his bread. He would struggle in his vocation. And uh, there isn't a man among us who won't admit that he struggles in his vocation. No matter how fulfilling our jobs may be in the beginning, they, they never seem to quite pay off. And the harder we work, the more frustrating they become. I don't know of any man who can honestly say that his job fully satisfies him. That's my uh, explanation for the 40-year itch. We all have dreams of the kind of, uh, the kind of vocation that we want, and we, uh, we prepare for it, and then we get into that, uh, that position in life, and we discover that it simply doesn't pay off. The reality is never quite like the dream. It's also true of all of life. You know how you feel about a vacation. You dream about the perfect vacation. And uh, you wait for it anxiously. And you go off to, uh, in your mind, you dream of lying on the beach and uh, soaking up the rays. And, and the children will play happily in the surf. And, and then you get there and it rains for a week straight. And by the end of the week, you're ready to kill your kids. And, and you and your wife aren't speaking to each other. And you can hardly wait to get back to your job. That's the way life is. It never quite fulfills our dreams and aspirations. And that's what Paul means when he says it's subjected to futility. But he subjected it in hope. That is, someday everything we dream about will come true. And as a matter of fact, as Paul puts it, God will do exceeding abundantly above anything you could ever ask or think. There is a reality to our dreams, but not on this world, in this world. But it's coming. There's a new world coming. He's subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This expression, slavery to corruption, is what a physicist would call the law of entropy or the second law of thermodynamics. It's, uh, I'm not a physicist, so I never can quite explain this properly, but it's the idea that the energy is always degrading. Uh, energy is always being broken down and, and occurring in less usable forms. The world is a closed system like a gas tank, and all of the energy was put in initially, and now it's all being drained out. So the whole world is running down, and we know it. We look at our own bodies, and though when you're young, it's hard to, to believe it. The older you get, the less energy you have. Paul is right when he says the outward man is perishing. And that's true of all of creation. But Paul says the time is coming when the one who subjected it to futility will restore it again. That's the new creation that John saw and describes for us here in, in Revelation. It's a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Now, uh, the question is, what will this new creation be like? Will it have any vestiges of the old creation? Will it be like uh, w the things that we enjoy in this life? I think it will. The word that, uh, that John chooses for new heaven and new earth is a word that means something renewed, not something brand new but renewed. 
In other words, there will be parts of this creation, the good parts, the parts that we enjoy, the things that we dream about that never quite materialize here. These will be a part of this new creation. As Hebrews puts it, everything that can be shaken will be shaken, but those things that cannot be shaken will endure. So some things will remain. You remember Maria's song in Sound of Music, When the Dog Bites, When the Bee Stings, When I'm Feeling Sad. I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so bad. Well, I think in this new creation there'll be no dog bites or bee stings or nothing to make us sad, but our favorite things will be there. The fellowship that we enjoy with one another, the love that we experience, all of the good things that God gives us in this life will somehow be perpetuated in the new creation without any of the things that cause sorrow or pain or hurt. In uh, C.S. Lewis's last uh, Narnian tale, in the great, in the last battle, the children have been fighting the Calamine. They're the uh, the symbol of evil in the in the book. Those who follow Tash, the false god, and the children follow Aslan, the symbol of of the Lord Jesus. And at the end, the, the Calamine throw them into uh, into a stable, which is a picture of the grave and all of its uh, darkness and and. Uh, the humiliating, humiliating aspects of death. But when they get in the stable, they discover that it's larger on the inside than it was on the outside. In fact, there's a whole world that's open to them, and, and the unicorn expresses uh, the feeling of the, of the children when uh, he sees that, that this new world is, uh, is like the, the first chapter of a book, that life is simply like the title page, and they've now entered the first chapter of, of the book itself. And every day is like morning. And he says the reason why we enjoyed so many things in Narnia is because they're so very much like this. There were intimations of glory in their, in their life here on earth that are realized in heaven. Now that's what John sees and describes here as, as the new heaven and the new earth. And um, the striking thing is that he really says only one thing about it. There is no longer any sea. Now, you have to understand how ancient man thought to appreciate that description. Ancient man feared the sea. That was one element of creation that he dreaded more than any other. Mariners didn't set out across the Mediterranean Sea. They hugged the shore because out there in its dark, murky depths, there were slimy, creepy things that went bump in the night and frightened you, and, and the sea was uh, evoked a feeling of dread and and fear. Now, what John is describing here is what Isaiah describes in chapters 65, 66, when he, he describes the new creation as a place where the lamb and the lion graze together. And uh, no one hurts or harms, he says, in my holy mount. There will be nothing to hurt you physically, nothing to harm you, nothing to cause fear or dread. You know, it's a funny thing about about the world around us. It, it's frightening. We don't like to admit it, but it is. We live in a hostile environment. We fear for our children when they go out to play. Or we send them off on a camping trip. All sorts of things could happen. That's the way our environment is. But in the new creation, all that dread will be removed. Carolyn and I were camping with Joshua and Sarah Utes last weekend while Steve was up here holding forth. We were 
taking it easy up in the mountains. And uh, we camped uh, alongside the river, and, and Sarah and Josh were uh, about 150 feet further on up the river in another tent. And uh, we were talking to them about staying there, and they no, they won't be afraid. That'll be fun. No, we want to stay there. We don't want to sleep in your tent. So everything was great till about 11 o'clock, and all this giggling broke out in the tent, and, and then, we, then it got quiet, and then we saw a flashlight flashing on the side of the tent, and pretty soon we heard them pit-pat, pit-pat through the brush, dragging their sleeping bags, and they crawled in bed with us. And they slept well the rest of the night, and I don't think we slept at all. And we were all packed in the tent. The next morning I said, Josh, why did you all come sleep with us? He said, there was something walking around out there. And I said, well, there's nothing but squirrels and small ants. No, there was something out there. Now, we're grown-up people, and we don't uh, have those fears. Or do we? <laughs> we do. We really do. And all of us can say, you know, when we're honest with ourselves, that there are times that we feel there's something walking around out there. And that's that sense of dread and impending doom that comes from living in a doomed environment. The world is running down. It's a hostile place to live. It's, it's scary. But John sees a new heaven and earth where all of that is, is gone. Where, so to speak, you could send your children out to play without fear. Where you could enjoy all of God's creation without dread. Now he describes the... Final state, in another way, in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. We've seen on a number of occasions through Revelation the contrast between the two cities, the city of man and the city of God. The city of man is Babylon, and the city of God is Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem. The city of man, the, the, the philosophy of the city of man is that life consists of of what you can acquire with your money or something you, you put on your body or something that you ride in or spray on or roll on or something, that will give you satisfaction and peace. And uh, it'll assuage the, the, the longing in your heart for something, whatever it is. That's Babylon. But over here is the city of God, the New Jerusalem. And uh, the distinguishing mark of those in the, in the New Jerusalem, God's city, is that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They, he is the one that they look to to satisfy their, their needs. And then at other times, the two cities are described as two women. There is the harlot, who represents Babylon, the city of man. And there is the bride, who symbolizes the New Jerusalem, the city of God. And she's the bride of the Lamb. Now, this is a bride who remains a bride forever. The problem with, uh, with our marriages is that we cease to be brides and grooms. Uh, the marriage relationship settles down to holy monotony. It's just tedium. But, you see, he's trying to evoke in our mind memories of our wedding day and wedding night, the beauty and the splendor and the glory of that day, that memorable day, and our desire to be brides and grooms forever. But the problem in this world is that our commitment tends to degrade. Men say to me when we talk about the need to continue courting your wife, they say, well, I've already caught the bus, why so keep on running? 
or I should bring Candy home to her. She's already overweight. Or what do you mean open the doors? Her arm broken? And we forget to be brides and grooms. But you see, here is a bride who remains a bride forever. The Lord is always a groom. The bride is always a bride with the freshness of a new love relationship. Some of you may have seen that Norman Rockwell painting of uh, the girl sitting behind a desk, attractive young lady in her desk is neat and tidy, and there's a bud vase on her desk, and she's dreaming. She dreams of her wedding day, and she sees herself standing beside her husband. And, and then in the, the next segment, uh, it shows her dreaming of uh, her homemaking uh, chores. She's standing at the sink, and her husband is standing beside her with an apron on, and they're washing the dishes. And, and then the next uh, segment shows uh, reality. She's standing at, at the front of the church with her intended. And, and the next segment shows her at home uh, in front of the sink, washing dishes, and the dishes are piled up like this, and the kids are on the floor screaming, and her husband is sitting in front of the TV set watching a boxing match, and her hair is sticking straight out from her head, and she has this harried, anguished look on her face, and she's dreaming of herself sitting behind a desk with a bud vase on it. <clears throat> and unfortunately, that's life. Our dreams just don't quite materialize because we live in a fallen world. But John sees a time when all of our emotional needs will be met, all of our longings and the aspirations of our hearts will be uh, satisfied. And then in verse 3, he sees a new world spiritually. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his peoples, and God himself shall be among them. That's the culmination of our yearning for God. And we are incurably religious people. We long for God with all of our heart from the moment of our birth. That's the, uh, that's the empty feeling that so many people have that they cannot fill with things and fame and fortune. It's that God-designed vacuum that only Jesus Christ can fill. As Augustine put it, O oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. It's that yearning to tent with God, to get into His tent and uh, share His protection in His life. But, you know, that's also the, uh, the culmination of God's yearning for us. And, you know, in all of Scripture, the only part of His creation of which it is said He, he loves it, is us, His people, all people. Of inanimate creation, it's said it's good, but, but the Bible never says that God loves things. He loves people. And, and He's seeking people to draw them into a relationship with Himself. That tug in your heart towards spiritual things that you cannot get away from is God drawing you in yearning for you. As Jesus told the woman at the well, when she wanted to know what mountain to worship uh, at, should she worship at Gerizim or at Mount Zion where the Jews worshipped? And Jesus said, young lady, it doesn't matter which of these mountains because what matters is that we worship God in spirit and in truth, that is, in the inner man and in reality. The ritual doesn't matter. The place doesn't matter. God wants the real thing, a heart that's devoted to Him. And God is seeking such to worship Him. Do you know that He yearns for you? 
He longs for your love. He grieves over you like a jealous husband when, uh, when you resist that love. He suffered for you. He died for you. The God of all the universe is yearning to spend time with you. And this is the, uh, this is the culmination of that longing. When he says he will be our God and we will be his people, he will tabernacle among us, we'll share his tent, he'll dwell among us, and we'll be his people. And the result is described in verse 4, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The first things are all the things that cause us to fear death or mourn or weep or experience pain. And we say, that's, uh, that's too good to be true. But uh, in reality, it's too good not to be true. And there's something in this revelation of uh, heaven that answers the cry of our heart. There is pie in the sky by and by. There is a payoff for eating your spinach now, so to speak. There is something coming that will make all the struggle and pain of this life worthwhile. That's why Paul says the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. We don't talk much about heaven, but it's real. And though we cannot fully understand, we don't even have the terminology to talk about it. Yet uh, these symbols arouse in us a hunger. We know it must be. There must be something more. Now, not only does our heart confirm it, but God himself confirms it in verses 5 and 6. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. I think John must have uh, been so caught up by what he was seeing, he failed to write. And so the voice from the throne says, Be sure and write it down, because it's truth. And he said to me, Done. Literally, that's the word. Done. It's uh, very much like an affidavit that we use in conducting business. Done this third, second day of August in the year of our Lord, 1981. It's done. And then it's signed by God himself. I am the Alpha and Omega. That's not the uh, real estate agency by that name, though they are trustworthy and faithful too, but... Uh, this is God himself, the beginning and the end, who signs the document with his own name, signs it in blood, so to speak. You can believe it. You can count on it. You can bet your life on it. It's real. It's not an illusion. It's not a dream. There's more to this life than simply cranking it out for 70 years and then obliteration. There has to be more. Our heart confirms it. God's Word confirms it. And then in verses 7 and 8, over against the certainty of, uh, of this new world, is a description of those who shall inherit it and those who shall not. In verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, that is, those who... Do not persevere under persecution. John is writing, you'll recall, to people who were tempted to recant, to turn away from God because of the 
pressure placed upon them by the Roman Empire. They chose personal safety rather than faithfulness to Christ. And the unbelieving, those who feared the threat of the beast more than they trusted the love of the Lamb, and therefore turned back the abominable, those who joined in emperor worship or idol worship, and murderers, those who aligned themselves with those who killed Christians, and fornicators, those that were involved in the, uh, the rites in the temple, and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. To these, God is lost forever, at least in terms of His mercy and grace. But John says in verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all these things. What? Well, the world described above, the new world. The world without dread and fear and without pain and suffering and where God will wipe every tear from our eyes and where all the struggles of this life will suddenly be explained and, and all of the sorrow of it put away. And John says, if we overcome, we'll inherit it all. Now again, remember, those who overcome are not a special moral, moral class who are tougher than anyone else. It's those who follow the Lamb. It's those who believe Him, who trust Him, and depend upon Him. And I want us to understand this, that, that we are in no sense strong and courageous, and, and those without Christ are cowards. Because all of us, at least in our hearts, have been guilty of all of the things that are described here. We're all cowards at heart. But what sets us apart is what John describes in verse 6. At the very end of the verse, we're thirsty. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. What is it going to cost you? Well, it's already cost the Lord Jesus his life, the life of God itself. And uh, here's a never-ending source of life available to us. What do we have to have to gain it, to get it, to experience it? Well, we just have to be thirsty, that's all. We've discovered that uh, we can never quench our thirst by things, by fame and fortune and popularity and money and power and prestige and homes and cars and and the, what we can get from this world. We'll never find it there. And so we're thirsty for God. That's what sets us apart. It's not that we're better intrinsically than anyone else. It's just that we're thirsty. And as Isaiah put it years before, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come buy and drink. Come buy wine and milk without money, and without price. We don't have anything to bring to the Lord but our thirst. But if we bring that, He'll satisfy us. He'll fulfill us. As Jesus put it at the very beginning of His ministry, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they'll be filled. It's all God wants is a thirsty heart. And if we come and drink of the water of life, which is the Lord Jesus Himself, He'll fulfill us. He'll satisfy us. He'll give us an inheritance. He'll give us all of these things that are described in, in these chapters. And, you know, the new thing is going on now. In verse 5, when John, when the voice from the throne says, I am making all things new, 
He actually uses a verb tense, a present verb tense, that suggests that it's happening right now. God is populating this new creation now. He's renewing your life now. He's giving you the capacity to cope with your sorrow and suffering now. If we're thirsty. If we keep on coming to Him. And if we do, we'll be satisfied. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you so much for this revelation of, of things to come. Thank you that it's real and certain, as reliable as your name. We thank you that you are the God who cannot lie. Help us to keep in perspective, um, keep this in perspective as we make our way through this life. So easy to forget that... Um, only those things that cannot be shaken will endure. And how easy it is to store up treasure on this life and think in terms of things that will gratify us now rather than thinking in terms of treasure in heaven where rust doesn't corrupt, where thieves don't break in and steal. Help us to lay it up there where, where it will last. Lord, we are all in our spirits cowards. We all would turn away were it not for the grace of God. We thank you for that grace that is available to us. Grant to us, Lord, a great hunger and thirst after righteousness. Grant to us the fulfillment and satisfaction that comes from that hunger. Help us to eat and drink of you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.